0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Are you happy? Some of you need to tell your face. That's better. Well, I'm glad to be here with you. My name is Tom Sharp. I'm from Noble, Oklahoma. My football team got beat last night. Let's get that over with. In the greater scheme of things, that's minute. I'm here to magnify the incredible God who created the heavens and the earth. And I hope to bless some of you who are listening intently from the word of God in this regard. I have a proposition that I want to try to develop. And the pastor said I may have five more minutes this morning in this service than the last service. And so that'll be good. That five minutes is important. He didn't say five. He said you've got a little unrestricted time maybe. Um, um, Well, he didn't say unrestricted. be honest with you. I can't remember what he said. (laughs) But what I want to do is to work on the proposition that Charles Darwin was a special tool of Satan. I highly recommend that when you go out you buy Dr. Jerry Bergman's book on the dark side of Darwin. It's a 2010 copyright book that has to do with documented evidence that he had ulterior forces working in him that desired to destroy the Mosaic scheme and to do away with the biblical view, particularly for the flood of Noah. And those driving forces were obviously not godly forces, and so he is totally convinced that he was a tool of Satan for the purpose of bringing an incredible deceptive scheme against the reality of the Word of God. And so I want to deal with that. Let me see if I can find a verse that I need here for this. Someplace in this... Well, I don't see it in this set of slides. So I'll just go to the Bible and get it. If you will turn with me in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 9. In Revelation 12, 9... This is just a sequential transition of thought beginning from verse 1 and through the rest of the chapter in Revelation 12. Verse 9 is cardinal to this passage because it contains a parenthetical emphasis that is not in the sequential process of historical unraveling That is being described here in chapter 12. And it gets to the statement that that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Which is a reference back to Genesis 3. And then it says, which deceives the whole world. So I want to talk about that just a second. Which deceives the whole world. This is a statement of purpose. And it is age-lasting. It began in Genesis 3, verse 15, when at the curse, the great curse, God pronounced enmity that would exist between the seed of the serpent, the serpent and his seed, and the woman and her seed. Of course, the woman then was Eve in this particular passage. It's Israel. And I think that uh, they're akin... And related intrinsically. But in the midst of verse 9, there is a statement of purpose about that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And it says, who deceive or which deceives the whole world. I mentioned in the morning service that I spoke to the Eastern Bloc Conference of Science, Philosophy, and Religion... Uh, The first American professor to go do that, and I remember going to Russia one summer four different times to speak to the organizing committee, and the head theologian for the Russian Orthodox Church, who was part of the committee, uh, in one of the meetings, he leaned over the table, and he said, Dr. Sharp, when you come and present your paper, be careful what you say about Charles Darwin, because we still like him here. And of course, I went from the Kremlin down a block and a half to the Moscow State Library to do some research. And I go into this huge megalith-style building and these gigantic columns and massive stone uh, pillars around this entry and noticed that at the top of the entryway, about a 32-foot bust etched in limestone, was a picture of Charles Darwin. So I'm totally convinced from that and other experiences in traveling around the world where I've seen Darwin entrenched in the scientific community of the Philippine Islands, of China, Japan, Eastern and Western Europe, in Mexico, in Canada, the United States. There isn't any industrialized country and in many third world style countries who have any kind of an educational procedure or process ...that hasn't adopted Darwinism as the philosophy of science and the delivery of science. So Darwinism has become the watchword in scientific delivery across the world. So when I look at this passage and it says, which deceives the whole world... ...it helps me understand that two things are necessary for this to be culminated or fulfilled. This becomes, in my estimation, a very significant prophecy of end time... And Charles Darwin, in my estimation, becomes a very significant personality in the fulfillment of the prophecy and a warning or a declaration to those who are watching that we're nearing the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I believe that with all my heart. That Darwin is a very special tool. There will be no more tools of this kind coming forward There'll just be significant emphases of this particular tool. Um, His academic approach may be transitioned into a New Age spiritual style, a very religious uh, battle that will be fought, that I think is entering or coming onto the shores of the Western world at this juncture. Uh, The other day I was visiting a church, and an elder lady in the church walked up to me just to emphasize this idea... And she'd been a member of that church for years, and she was a very sensible, uh, dependable lady. And she said, Dr. Sharp, I want to ask you a question. I said, well, of course. She said, well, I've had a reoccurring dream. I said, you have? She said, yes, I keep seeing this incredible foreboding dark cloud coming up out of the eastern sea from the east. And it's gathering, and it's very... uh, tumultuous and very threatening and it's beginning to roll on the shores of North America. I said, wow. Well, a cloud in scripture refers to systems or movements coming up out of the population of the world uh, and, and or the sea represents that and clouds represent coming events or movements uh, in prophecy and I see that myself. I see that same kind of thing happening and I think Right at the nose of that, at the head of that, is this deceptive reality that is housed in the personality of Darwin because he has taken the mindset of the world with a notion that is incredibly deceptive. Evolutionism is not scientific in any degree in its primary primary, uh, propositions. Now, some of its secondary and tertiary uh, Developments can have some circumstantial scientific support, but the primary proposition of Darwinism is purely religious. It's a step of faith. In The Origin of Species and in his Descent of Man, Darwin introduced his arguments 800 times with the phrase, Now let us suppose. So he speculated endlessly. And he would speculate, and after a paragraph or two, his speculation would become the basis for his next speculation. And so he built speculation upon speculation upon speculation without scientific support. I remember standing at the entry to the Linnaean Society in the documentary that's out on the table out there on the life and legacy of Charles Robert Darwin. And by the way, one of the great experts that's in that particular documentary is a man who lives in Toronto. His name is Ian Taylor. Anybody heard the name Ian Taylor? He is a creationist. Of You have heard of him? Uh, is he still alive? I haven't heard from him in five years. Talk to me after church. I'd like to know. I'd like to go visit him if he's still kicking. Um, please excuse me. That's an Oklahoma expression for alive. Um, I'll translate my okie okay lingo. Uh, nonetheless, um, the point is simply this. This becomes an exceedingly deceitful and heinous movement that's afoot in the world. And so this says that that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which I think was the originator and the inventor of evolution, I believe the first evolutionist was Lucifer, and the reason he was kicked out of heaven is he rebelled against God, he denied his sovereignty, his deity, his almightiness, his creatorship, and he also denied the authority of his word. He said, I will, asc- I will ascend to the throne of heaven. I will sit on this throne. I will occupy the farthest sides of the north. Isaiah 14. Those are the pr- principles that exude from an evolutionary system. The denial of the authority of God and the denial of the authority of his word. Those are the two primary predictable realities of evolution. Now... What makes it so formidable and what makes it so heinous and deceivable and believable is because Darwin robed it in the revolution, in the industrial explosion that was going on in his lifetime in the uh, mid-19th century. In the mid-1830s, when Queen Victoria took the throne of England... She was being hauled around in the same mode of transportation as the Caesars and the pharaohs had before her. But before she died in 1901, she was being transported in railroad cars. She was using telephones and turning on electric lights. In other words, in her reign over England and the English Empire, she saw an incredible revolution of scientific invention and innovation. Darwin hooked his notion, his ideas, into that tidal wave of scientific development and rode it all the way to the shore, into the hearts of the Western world, and it has taken by storm the academic community. It is everywhere in the world. Fulfilling, in my estimation, this passage in Revelation 12 that says, who deceives the whole world. In order to deceive the whole world, you need the whole world. And so you have to have some kind of a post-19th century Uh, environment. So I think you need the establishment of the United States and North America uh, in its uh, modern establishment. And then you need some phase of believability and acceptability to make this ancient philosophy acceptable. And what did that was scientific credibility. The heinous, deceptive nature of evolutionism today is that it has been accepted as if it were scientific. And so that particular notion of scientific credibility and believability has made it a very dangerous idea. There is not one school in the public sector in the state of Oklahoma or Texas or anywhere in the United States, and I would suggest to you in in Canada, that doesn't use evolution and Darwinism as the driving guide in the philosophy of science. Is that right or wrong? And so I'm telling you, it has taken the world. It's all over Japan, it's all over the Philippine Islands, it's all over Russia, it's all over Western Eastern Europe, it's all over Mexico and Canada the United States, everywhere. Australia, everywhere. And it is and carries with it the inevitable results of a godless system. So what we're seeing in the United States in the 20th century is the decline of the Bible. I would suggest to you that what we're seeing in Canada is the decline of the Bible. If the Bible had any influence hundred years ago, it doesn't have that same influence today. Amen. The 20th century in the United States of America, and I'm totally convinced it's not an awful lot different in Canada. I've, I apologize to you for not doing my Canadian history. But I didn't have the opportunity. You can fill in the blanks. If this is wrong, you can tell me about it after a while. I'll apologize but in the United States the 20th century will go down if we have the time to stand back in a vantage point and look at it from a historical perspective we will we will recognize the most influential thing the most successful thing of the 20th century was not landing a man on the moon it was not the solving of polio it was not all of these other things that we think are great and they were great okay those are great things But the most significant thing that happened in the 20th century was the decline of the Bible and the influence of American thought. And ultimately and finally, by the time we get to uh, 1961-62, we realize that it had so accumulated influence that we have a Supreme Court that has the unmitigated audacity to tell the people of America that it's now unconstitutional for our children to read the Bible... And to pray at school. And the tragedy in all of that is, we in the United States sat on our duff and let it happen. We kept singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, kept sending our kids to the secular school. I'm totally convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that once Moses got the children of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't gather the kids up every morning and take them back to Egypt to go to school. I'll let you solve that problem. Point is, when this says, who deceives the whole world, I think we've seen the fulfillment and the culmination of that prophecy in the last 200 years. And I think it is bearing incredible fruit at this juncture. For today, as I speak to you, one of the devastating realities that we're facing in the American church community is that we are now losing... 75 to 90 percent depending upon the locality there's a lot of local influence that has to do with this particular statistic but it has grown rapidly since I pastored the church in 1965 I woke up one day in the early 1970s and recognized that in the church I was pastoring in Florence Alabama I was losing out of our church 60 percent of our young people by age 15 just suddenly became strangers in their own home. I had weeping parents come to me over and over again and sit in my office and say, my son or my daughter has become a stranger in our home, completely alien to everything that our family is about and to the philosophy of our family and our biblical belief and our place in the work of God and the kingdom of God, and they become a total stranger. Well, out there on the table is a book by Ken Ham. Have you heard Ken Ham? Heard of him? He's written a book with... Britt Beamer, called Already Gone. And he discovered in 2009 that 66% of the kids in middle school, middle school, now in the United States that's somewhere between fourth and eighth grade, 66% of the kids have already made up their mind they're leaving the church. That blows my mind. In other words, I'm telling you the fruit of this overwhelming tsunami of disbelief, unbelief, infidelity has rolled on the shores of the western world and is taking no captives. Thank God for your pastor. I'm impressed with him. I've been in this particular ministry, we're entering our 24th year. I have never had a senior pastor in those 24 years call me up and say, I want to talk to you. I sat back in my chair. I said, well, let's just talk. He said, now, what are you going to say about this verse? Okay. Now, what are you going to say about this verse? I told him, okay. I said, well, what are you going to say? And he asked me specific questions about what I was going to say because he wanted to find out What kind of a shike poke he was letting in this pulpit. (laughs) What are you going to say? He was concerned about you. Now that really impresses me. I think that's significant. The point is simply this. Dr. Morris said, and Dr. Morris in my estimation is the founder and father of the modern revival of biblical creation... And probably, not just in the United States, probably in North America, maybe the world. And he said in his book, The Long War Against God. And I highly recommend that you take this book home with you. Of the 60 books the man wrote, this is the most influential thing he ever wrote. He said, thus evolution in any of its intellectual forms has fought against God from the beginning. On page 15, he says an amazing thing. He said... um, The denial of God, rejecting the reality of supernatural creation and the creator's sovereign rule of the world, has always been the root cause of every human problem. He opened my eyes to understand that evolution was not a scientific notion or a biological theory. It doesn't have anything to do with biology or science. It is a deception that has crept into the scientific classroom because it gains its credibility because of its so-called scientific sanction. He said, this evolutionary, humanistic, pantheistic, even atheistic worldview, I think it's interesting that a survey was done just recently in the United States concerning our most prestigious scientific organization called the the National Academy of Sciences and found out that 93% of the members of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States are... Atheists and Marxists. And so it becomes very obvious that Darwinism is the default position for atheism. He said, this evolutionary, humanistic, pantheistic, even atheistic worldview has taken many different forms over the ages, varying with time and culture, but it has always been there in one guise or another. It has always been there. I didn't even see that until maybe 10 years ago, that evolution was a scientific or was a satanic principle that intruded into biblical sanity for the purpose of denying the authority of the creator and reversing or deconstructing his word completely and totally its ultimate purpose was not scientific advancement it has not helped in landing a man on the moon it hasn't helped in the development of one vaccine or one Uh, antibiotic. It hasn't improved medical science in one degree. If anything, Darwinism that says that life can arise from non-life by chance processes over long periods of time has put science back a hundred years. Hasn't invented, innovated not one thing. Amen. It's a very deceivable notion that gains its credibility from science and wars against the authority of God. And has it been successful? It's got the vast majority of the Bible-believing crowd in North America taking their kids to where they teach that nonsense. And I will show to you, if I had time, I don't have time. I would I'd love to do a program here called Missing Links and Other Assumptions. I, will sh- I would show you in that program that the 10 icons of evolution have all been disproved some of them for 100 years but they still show up in the 2010 textbooks now what's that about it's not about teaching science it's about raw arrogant indoctrination amen you say well dr sharp don't dr sharp me that's the reality that we're facing today, trying to serve the Lord, trying to win our children, and we're losing 75 to 90% of them to secular thinking at the time they're 15 because we have them in the kingdom of God or in the church maybe three or four hours a week, but the secular crowd has them the rest of the time, and we're losing the battle. you hear me? We're losing the battle. What are we going to do about it? I'll leave that for you to decide. The point is, it's paganized North America. The paganization of North America has been based upon this notion of evolutionary thinking, but please be aware of the fact that this evolutionary thinking is non-scientific. I was in Bentonville, Arkansas in a Baptist meeting and the Uh, Northwest Arkansas Baptist Association had about 80 churches, and about 30, 40 of them came together to have a big meeting, and they brought me in to speak for three days, and uh, so the church was about like this, and it was just full of people, and at the end of the program uh, on Sunday night, a gentleman walked down the center aisle, and I found out that he was a paleontologist from the University of Arkansas just down the road at Fayetteville, And so he's about six foot four. So I step down, and I'm looking up at him, and that's automatically condescending. You know, he's looking down at me, and I'm looking up at him. And um, he said, "Uh, "You're about the dumbest guy I've ever met." (laughs) I said, "Yes." So, so, um, what do you mean? He said, "Well, I've never heard such stupid things fall off the lips of anybody in my entire life." I said, "Sir, what 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 do you think I said that was so stupid?" He said, well, I don't have time to tell you. I said, well, now, and Chris, about that, that shocked me. I mean, would that shock you? I mean, that shocked me. So, and, and I caught myself and uh, took a deep breath, and then, then I stepped up and got up on my tiptoes so I could get up as close to his eyes as I could get. And I said, I'm going to tell you something right now, sir. I will let you prove to this congregation, how stupid I am, and we'll let them decide so tomorrow night you come back I'm going to give you the first 30 minutes I'll take the last 30 minutes, and we'll find out who's stupid oh he said I would never do that I said why not, because he said you creationists control all the rhetoric I said what do you mean control the rhetoric could it be that we have information that you're not prepared to deal with, you set up in those ivory towers of secular education and you, you know, you've pat one other on the back that you've got this thing by the tail and you will not allow your ideas to be challenged by an open free expression of ideas amen and he's backing up now and I walked all the way out to his car and talked to him through his window till he drove off amen he did not come back That ought to say something about this circumstance. This is the most incredible thing I have ever seen with regard to the notion of its scientific veracity. But in the name of science, evolution has denied God. And so in the United States, the ACLU will not allow you to talk about creation in the classroom because it's unconstitutional on the basis of separation of church and state... But they permit the free expression of evolution in every state school in the nation. In other words, according to the American Constitution, the First Amendment, we're not supposed to have a government endorsement of religion. But we've been doing it for 50 years. Our government has endorsed a religion called evolution. It's a faith system. In the name of science, it's gained this sanction. And so I want to read this to you. This is an important quotation by a modern scientist who's a professor at Harvard. He's a geneticist and a Marxist. Many evolutionists are Marxist, by the way. He said, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. So when he uses the word science, he's not using the word science in the pure, rigid meaning of the word science. He's not talking about the observation of cause-effect relationships, the current nature that can be observed, tested, repeated, and falsified. That's science. He's talking about naturalism. We accept the notions of naturalism, but we accept them in spite of the fact that there's a struggle between them and the supernatural. So what we're doing here is we're accepting naturalism versus supernaturalism. This is the struggle. It has nothing to do with science. Ladies and gentlemen, the biblical view of reality does not say one thing about good science. In fact, God ordained good science. Amen. Genesis 1.28 And God blessed them and multiplied them and said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The word subdue is the Hebrew word that means to master. So master it. I saw that one day and I said, what in the world? Subdue in Hebrew is a military term and we're before sin here. And I said, Lord, what do you want Adam to master? What are you saying here? And I kept digging into brown driver and briggs and looking at this word subdue and master and it dawned on me to master something is to dissect it in its smallest parts and to understand how it works and so the suggestion here or the inference here or the implementation here is that god is saying to adam i want you to take these big theories These big notions, these big principles that I've laid down, he said they will bring forth after their kind. That's one thing. Of course, that's the origin of genetics. And when God says they'll bring forth after their kind, and he says that 10 times in one chapter, he's trying to get something through the crusts. You got that? In other words, he's trying to tell you there there will be no missing links. Quit looking for them. Lewis and Mary Leakey crawled around in Kenyan, Tanzania looking for missing links until they wore all the knees out of their pants and wore the toes out of their shoes and they never found one. There are no missing links. They keep coming up with these things and call them missing links. I've chased and pursued all of that idea for a long, long time. And the last 10 years, I've just quit worrying about it because their own peer review destroys it. They, well, this is a missing link. Six months later, they've rejected it. There isn't any missing links. I never will forget going to the Smithsonian for 8 or 10 days to study there. And they assigned to me a guy by the name of Raymond Rye. Who was a, the paleobiologic uh, director of that particular area of understanding. And he's a crusty old evolutionist. And he knew I was a biblical creationist. And so I come in there and he looks at me. And I look like a couple of Banny Roosters. And we're sizing one of them up. And... Um, so we got over that, you know, that posturing, we got over that, and he became a very good friend of mine and very kind to me, and we're running around there. He signed me a guy to, to open up the, the cases. We're talking about the National Museum of Natural History, just about a block and a half or two blocks from the White House, and uh, he gave me a pass so I could park behind the museum. That's a neat deal, and uh, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. recently, you can't park behind the museum. The best you can do is get a mile or two miles from it. That's as close as you can get, so that's a wonderful thing. And so I'm looking around. One day, he come to this case, and it has a cricket in it. Cricket. You know what a cricket is? Well, they call crickets in Canada. Thank you. Good. So we're we're communicating. I want to be sure I'm communicating. There's a cricket. And I say, Ray, yeah. I said, is this a cricket? That's a cricket. I said, how old is that cricket? He said, that cricket is 35 million years old. I said, Ray, isn't it amazing that crickets have been crickets for such a long time? He looks at me. I said, Raymond, yes. Uh, Are there any known fossil crickets older than this one? He said, no, this is about the oldest one we know about. I said, are you telling me that from the beginning of the life of crickets, they've always been crickets? (laughs) And his lip starts to curl. He knows I got him by the goozle. I'm stifling the breath right out of him. In other words, the first time we see crickets, they're crickets. The first time you see snails, they're snails. The first time you see trilobites, they're trilobites. The first time you see clams, they're clams. The thing that you don't find are snams and clails and clamobites. You don't see this stuff in the middle. Amen. I mean, when the Bible says they'll bring forth after their kind, it's trying to tell you there will be no missing links. Amen. Somebody ought to get excited about that. No missing links. There are willingness to accept scientific claims. So a scientific claim is not scientific opinion. It's the opinion of scientists. And there's a vast difference between the opinion of a scientist and scientific opinion. Scientific opinion has been verified by testing and found to be true or at least possible. But the opinion of scientists is just like everybody else's opinion... It's just the opinion of a man or a woman who has a bias. Now, let me explain that to you. Now, you wave your hand to your hanky or kick your foot up or throw your shoe or something when I run, when I get down to five minutes. Because st- I'm still on Oklahoma time, and according to my watch, it's quarter after 11. <laughs> I'm doing good. I was invited to... S- to to go to a panel discussion at Channel 14, Oklahoma City, our PBS affiliate in Oklahoma City. I get there, and there is Dr. Hutchinson from the University of Oklahoma, and there's the head of the philosophy department from Oklahoma State University, and there's a theologian from Oklahoma City University, all three evolutionists, and they're sitting at the table, and then the moderator of this panel discussion is is a secular skeptic, So all these guys are looking at me to see if I really breathe or do I perform some kind of osmosis, you know. And I'm a Bible creationist, and they kind of size me up, and I get to sit at the end of the table, and they start the cameras rolling, and we're going out live all over Oklahoma. Dr. Hutchinson, who is a biologist from OU, says, well, all the evidence is in favor of evolution. I said, what evidence are you talking about? I can't let him get by with that on TV, not me sitting there. What do you mean evidence is in favor of evolution? What evidence do you mean? Anybody can say that. He said, well, we've got evidence from biochemistry, from comparative anatomy, from the fossil record, from genetics, all of it's in favor of evolution. And, and the head of the philosophy department from OSU said, yeah, he's right. I said, what do you mean he's right? Give me some evidence. You haven't said anything yet. Well, that really got away with him. He got blustered. Oh, he said, well, 99.4% of the biochemistry of chimpanzees is similar to the biochemistry of human beings. I said, well, I've read about that in the journals. I'm familiar with what you're talking about. But I've never seen 99.4% similarity. I've seen more like 80%. I think if you go back and check, that's probably what it is. But I said, I agree with the fact that that is evidence. So what do you think that evidence means? Interpret that for me. He said, well, that means that chimpanzees are our nearest relative in the animal kingdom. I said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't agree with that interpretation. I believe that means that the creator God was of such might and power that he could make similar phenotypes to live on a similar planet with similar needs. And he created them to be like they were, not because we were related, but because he's the creator. We don't have common ancestry here. We have common creation. Amen. Well, he got off of that. He didn't want to talk about that anymore. Well, what happened? If you get this, if you grasp this, you have the bottom line of this controversy. We have lost our place in society, lost our right to speak, lost our ability to declare reality to the greater public, to the evolutionary crowd. And we're exposed to their interpretation of the evidence, and it is of such profound majority. In other words, they don't have anyone confronting them. So they're all alone. They just give their point of view. They occupy the TV. They occupy the school system. They occupy the greater degree of the culture. They sit in the chairs of of major universities. No one in the Bible-believing crowd is even permitted to get close to that position. So we're exposed to an evolutionary interpretation of the evidence, and it's being presented as if it is the evidence. If you grasp that, you got the problem. We're exposed to the evolutionary interpretation statement. In other words, when I pick up this fossil and I look at this fossil. Now tonight, I'm going to talk about all these guys and the biblical view. You coming? You don't want to miss this. So I pick this fossil up and I look at this fossil. When I start talking about this fossil, now we can... We can organize this, we can arrange it, we can study it, we can determine what layer it came from. We can identify the fact that it's uh, in the same layers as other kinds of things. So, yeah, Maybe if it's a Hell Creek formation or it's a Morrison formation or whatever, then we can, we can do that. That's science and that's scientific approach. But for me to look at that and look at the rock layers and say it's so old and its mother was green and blue and ate bananas... That's not science. So when I start interpreting origins, I put on biblical glasses. I look at this through biblical glasses. My evolutionary colleague, he looks at this same fossil. We look at the same evidence. This is evidence. And he puts on naturalistic glasses so that his interpretation of this fossil... Supports the naturalistic, secular point of view. My interpretation supports the Bible. I build my worldview out of the Bible and interpret what I see in the world from the Scripture. That's biblical worldview. Amen. And so I'm saying to you, what we must recognize is we see this struggle between the opinion of scientists and the opinion of Bible believers... And we find it's a great problem. We take the side of science, or the naturalistic point of view, in spite of its patent absurdity of some of its constructs. I told the crowd this morning, what, what Lewontin is talking about here is that, you know, they say that 3.5 billion years ago, lightning struck a tide pool outside an ancient volcano, exciting the coacervates and the microspheres into a replicating system And eventually, after natural selection worked on it a few million years, it worked itself into amino acids. And it just organized itself up into long chains of proteins. And then it grew hair, eyes, and legs, and skin. And it wiggled out of the water under a flat rock. And after millions of years of natural selection, it got lonely under that rock. It climbed out from that flat rock, climbed a tree, and ate bananas a while until it decided, I need to get out of this tree. I want to do something besides eat bananas and live in this tree. So it went downtown, got a haircut, got a suit of clothes, and went down to Oxford and started teaching philosophy. We take the side of science in spite of its patent absurdity. That's absurd. That's absurd. That's one of the absurdities. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment. This is the key and the kicker. The prior commitment here, he says, is a commitment to materialism. In other words, the evolutionary crowd accept evolution because it's in agreement with the materialistic origin of things. They can't have an immaterial basis for their origins or they're going to have to be accountable to something outside themselves. If they admit that this has design in it, that this has intelligence in it that's beyond and transcendental to anything human, then they've got to seek out what that intelligence is and they've got to pay obeisance to that. And, you know, it's anathema for a physicist to think that anyone knows more math than they know. But the creator God knows more math in his little finger than they know all over. That's the problem, or That's the unique reality. And so the the idea is it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us. In other words, it's not demanded by science. Evolution is not demanded by science. That's what this man is saying, one of the greatest geneticists in the United States. It's that... We establish our deductions from materialism that demand a material explanation. And so he said, we've got to do that because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So that's the idea. That's the bottom line in this whole scheme of things. And so I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that this becomes a significant problem today. Well, let's see. Where to end this? I'll end it with this verse. So what has happened, Paul said, when they knew God, they wouldn't glorify him as God. And so their feudal minds were darkened. And the Bible says they exchanged the truth. So this is an academic pursuit. They exchanged the truth. You take this, I'll take that. So they exchanged the truth for the lie. And the Bible says, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Have you read Francis Schaeffer's book, The Christian Manifesto? Have you read it? Incredible book. If you haven't read it, go get it and read it. The Christian Manifesto. He says in there that we in North America view the whole scheme of things in bits and pieces. And we explain it and understand it in bits and pieces or in parts. We don't see the whole of it. And he said there are two holistic notions that are in charge of the way people think today. And we don't see that as a worldview. He said there's a secular worldview or a non-biblical worldview. And then there's the biblical worldview. And then he said, and this is the kicker. He said the worldview that you accept will inevitably control the development of your character if you're a Bible believer and you're espoused to the authority of the scripture it will inevitably affect your character if you believe that the Bible is a joke and that really we're here is the result of long processes of accident and chance over time And we're just, you know, the result of chance processes, random processes in nature being controlled by a mindless driving force called natural selection. If you believe that, then that will impact how you think about morality, how you think about life, how you think about eternal verities or realities. And so I'm saying to you, if you've exchanged the truth for the lie and you find yourself in love with yourself, do you know one of the problems in the United States? We've lost the fear of God. We've lost the fear of God. We don't fear the Lord. You know one of the problems in the American church? We've lost the fear of God. You know one of the problems in Canada? you've lost the fear of God. There can be no fear of God if you do not have firmly in place in your worldview as the head and guidance of all that you are, the fact that you are the result of divine design by a creator God who robed himself in flesh and came to this earth and died for your sins and rose the third day to lead Captivity captive and give gifts unto men. If you do not have that as your premier world viewpoint, you will become so in love with yourself, you can't worship Jesus Christ. But if you realize that you're the result of divine design, you will fall at his feet as dead and ask him to please help you because you do not want to do anything or think anything that will impact His grace and nature. Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to leave it at that. Tonight I'm going to talk about dinosaurs. I don't want to have to talk about dinosaurs. But you know I have got to talk about dinosaurs because dinosaurs has taken over. People believe they rule the world. You realize this, this, this T-Rex behind me, we lopped the top off his head. He was found up in Harding County, South Dakota. Lopped the top off his head, did an intracranial cast of his brain cavity, found out that his brain's the size of a grape. Now, whatever he ruled over, it wasn't much. I want to talk about that tonight. You coming? God bless you all. Thank you,
1: Pastor. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer, but can I just speak to you for one moment about what's on my heart, the burden of my heart, which culminated in this three days. Tomorrow, most of you are going to send your children out to a public school system or your grandchildren. And they're going to tell your children that God's word isn't true. They're going to teach a different reality with respect to how we came to be. That's why I think it's so important because you're going to do that tomorrow, that you bring your children out here tonight. And you bring them back here on Tuesday night where they will hear the truth. We didn't put this weekend together to remind all of us in terms of preaching to the choir that evolution is wrong and creation is right. That's not why we put these three days together. While my mother and father were thinking I was getting an education that would lead me toward or, or at least not interfere with my walk toward God, while your parents sent you to school and to university thinking that it wouldn't undermine your thinking about the things of God, it did. It did. And what keeps me up many, many nights in turmoil is that my colleagues who stand in pulpits around this country have as their basis an increasing um, invitation to an evolutionary materialist kind of philosophy and no longer are firmly convicted and convinced and committed to the truth of God's word from the very beginning of the book of Genesis and the way God has presented it to us. It's a miracle of creation that he stated to us. This is how it was at the beginning. Some are calling it a secondary issue. It really doesn't matter in terms of the gospel what you believe at the front of the book. It has everything to do with what you believe about the gospel based on what you believe at the front of the book. Because the gospel formula is no different than the creation formula. God, who said, let light shine in your hearts, chased away darkness that you might respond to Christ. It matters. And so it's the burden of my heart that our congregation and from our congregation... And whatever leadership influence God gives me, I will stand firm and proclaim that our God created this universe and all that is in it in six literal 24-hour days. And so that's what this weekend is about. So come on back tonight. Bring your kids. Bring your nephews and your nieces. Do whatever you can to hijack your family and your all your relatives and make sure they understand what the truth really is about our great God. Our Father and our God, we thank you and we praise you. And we recognize that there is a strong force, a philosophy, a materialistic philosophy that has continued to erode away the confidence of even the elect even those who are yours are accommodating the possibilities of this philosophy coexisting with the philosophy presentation and teaching of the scriptures. And Father, we know that the two are mutually exclusive. And so Lord, I pray tonight that, uh, or, or this morning that you would Burden our hearts afresh because it's our sons and our daughters, our Christian colleagues, our evangelical churches that are falling away from the truth to this tidal wave of so-called rational thinking that God says, when you and your so-called rationality reject the truth claims of the scripture, you become irrational. So our Father, we praise you and thank you. You are the God of truth. You lead us to truth. We we desire that in our hearts. Strengthen us, help us. Help us, Father, to make a difference these next couple of days with Dr. Sharp and his team. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.